invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. We are moving through this book, hopefully at a pace that encourages you, but it is a deep book and there's a lot there to kind of mine through as I feel like we are spelunking through deep caverns that are tying the Bible together. I confess I've never studied Hebrews on this scale, and uh, it's a challenge each week. It's a good challenge, and I'm thankful for it, but it's a stretch to get into the Word of God, and I think, why did it take this long to put together something like we're going to study today? And it just does, because it's, it's heavy. And, you know, a lot of Pulpits are trending where they go about 20 minutes, but uh, we're not just giving a motivational talk for you this morning. We're, I'm, I'm hoping the Spirit of God motivates you. I'm hoping that you want to live for Jesus more because you've heard the Bible this morning. But we're also taking time to move through the text and see what's there. We're exploring the Bible together for several minutes, several, several minutes. So let's, uh, let's dive in. I um, have been thinking about preaching since I was 19. Uh, When I was 18, turning 19 at Liberty University, I decided early that fall to go into full-time ministry and pursued a, uh, a career track and a major that was in pastoral ministries and started to study the Bible and study it in depth even in those early years. My brother, who's also a preacher and expositor, uh, he recommended back then, because he was also on a pastoral track then as a student, he said, Jeff, what you should do during summers and any time during the year is do internships, do as many as possible. And so I did several, and that was a great thing, but sometimes I didn't think through all of where I was going before I jumped into an internship. And so one one summer I... Um, was buddies with a guy. He said, hey, let's go down to Florida. Let's go down to Jupiter, Florida and join a youth internship down there and apply for that and and just serve. And so I did. I didn't even check out the church before I went and uh, was just serving. And so I met with the senior pastor and realized suddenly that we weren't on the theological same page, but I was the youngster, so it really didn't matter. So I was there to learn and he was quirky and he had a really cool English, I, I would guess South African accent. So, you know, he was just compelling to listen to whatever he was saying. But um, he said a lot of pithy things. And one of which was this, and I'll try to summon the inner South African accent here. The main thing in life is keeping the main thing, the main thing. Now, listen, he didn't come up with that, but He said it in a way that was really fun. And then we would sing it every Sunday night. We would have this catchy tune. And if Pete was still up here, I'd probably sing it, but I'm not going to do it. (laughs) But even though this cliche is kind of cliche to the max, doesn't the Bible teach us that the main thing in life is keeping the main thing, the main thing? I mean, look at just, I'm going to just give you a flurry of verses real quick to prove this. Deuteronomy 6 4 and 5, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. 
Job, his passionate cry through suffering, 19 verse 25, for I know that my redeemer lives and at last he will stand upon the earth. Psalm 42, one, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understand and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness on the earth. Matthew 22, echoing Deuteronomy 6, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first And great commandment, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to the testimony of Peter with Jesus out of John 6, 68. Peter answered him, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Romans speaks of Paul's heart after he's worked through all of this gospel preamble content. Then he gets to Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. First Corinthians 2, 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Second Corinthians 4, 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Galatians 2, 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Ephesians three seventeen. Christ, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Philippians 3.13 and 14, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, right? One thing. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then Revelation 22, we've kind of gone through the whole Bible here. Revelation 22, 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. John says, amen, come Lord Jesus. So the main thing in life is loving the Lord our God all heart, mind, soul, and strength, leaving everything behind. I'm crucified with Christ. I'm all in for Christ. He's it. And every week I heard this from a brother uh, before I'm preaching right now. It's, it's the reminder that every week we sort of get into a digression from this, don't we? We start to digress and then we need to get on Sundays jerked back into reality with the word of God that Jesus is the main thing. He's why we live And loving him is our chief end of man. We glorify God and we enjoy Jesus Christ forever. Well, Hebrews 7 is no different than this series of verses. Hebrews 7 is banging home a key point, and that is Jesus Christ is superior as high priest. All of what's been taught, Hebrews 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 leading into 7 is all crystallized at the end of chapter 7 going right into 
chapter 8, verse 1, Christ is superior. All the priesthood, all the ceremony, all the setup is to show and prove that Christ is greater and superior. He's the fulfillment of it all. He's the picture of beauty and grace as he is our great intercessor. Look at our text here. Actually, just skip down to Hebrews 8 verse 1 because we're going to explore verses 26 going up to 8.1. But look at the first several words. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. Whenever you have a phrase like that in the Bible, you want to take notice and say, we're getting ready to summarize a whole lot. The point of all that's been proceeding. You have subpoints and then you have a main point. A key subpoint is Jesus is a superior high priest, and that's building to a main point. And so that's how the sermon is phrased here. Subpoint to main point, looking at the logical pro- pro- um, progression of things. Now let's back up to verses 26 to 28 to get a running start. Jesus, point one is Jesus is a superior priest, high priest, because he is holy. So this is a subpoint. We're proving the main point with the subpoint. And the subpoint is that Jesus had to be holy in all of his perfections to qualify as a superior high priest. You don't have a Jesus who is holy. You do not have Jesus. If you have a Jesus who is, you know, just human, just like us and kind of God, that's not Jesus. Jesus is fully man, fully God. Jesus is fully holy in his humanity and fully holy in his deity. This is what qualifies Jesus to be worshiped and for him to be able to be a perfect sacrifice and a perfect high priest and intercessor for us. That's what we've been learning. He's it. A lot of people worship less than Jesus in the name of Jesus. Let that sink in. A lot of people do. A lot of people even this morning don't have a full picture of the true Christ. And so they miss the main point of the Bible and they miss the main point in particular of the book of Hebrews. And more importantly, they might miss heaven for getting this wrong. So look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. It's appropriate to have this kind of high priest, a priest who has perfect character, fitting, qualified to fulfill his intercessory role in our lives. Now, what does that mean? Back up to verse 22. Remember, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. We talked about how the promise from from the Old Testament was that there would be Christ who's the greater high priest. And Jesus Christ himself is the guarantor of the new covenant. He puts his whole self on the line at stake in terms of this promise. He's going, I guarantee that your salvation is real for all of eternity for you. He's the guarantee. He's the assurance of our salvation. Verse 23, by comparison, former priests, many in number, they died. Remember that from last week? Verse 24, but he holds the priesthood permanently, continues forever. This is eternal. 
consequently is able to, verse 25, save to the uttermost. He not half saved you. He all the way saved you. It's a comprehensive salvation. You're washed completely. You're cleansed completely, past. If you say, I've done some things in the present, is that marred the salvation deal that Christ promised? Not at all. Your sins, past, present, and future, are subsumed in Christ and his atonement that he provided at Calvary as our high priest. He did this for us. He went into the Holy of Holies, in essence, with himself as the sacrifice to the Father, cleansing us of all sins. And so he is the guarantee. He is our advocate as we've been learning. He's qualified to do this. Why? Why is he qualified? Verse 26 begins to open up a series of attributes or descriptions of Christ that you can bank on. These are attributes, by the way, that you should resonate with. If you're Christ, if your vision of Jesus is less than these attributes, you don't have Jesus. Are you following? To have the God of the Bible, to worship the true Christ, he has to match with what is spoken of him from Holy Scripture. Holy Scripture is the Holy Spirit's description of the Son. And so to have the Son, you must have a matching vision of Christ with Scripture. And so let's look at these attributes together. The first one is in verse 26, holy. You see that? It's indeed fitting. We should have such a high priest. Number one, holy. This isn't the Greek word hagios that's regularly used through the New Testament for the word holy or for saints, which is hagios meaning set apart. Christ Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 6 and the vision that Isaiah saw where the angels in heaven are saying a thrice holy um, ceremonial praise to Christ. He is holy, holy, holy. That is the vision of the Lord Jesus from the Old Testament. It's proven by the gospel of John 12, 41. You can look it up, but Jesus is that one seated on the throne. He is thrice holy, but this word holy is the word Osios, Osios, which means it's speaking to godly character, his perfections in terms of his perfect devotion to the Father. No one has better integrity than Christ. Christ Jesus had perfect character, perfect holy devotion to his Father. Perfect. Never had a bad motive. This is the same godliness that men of God are supposed to have, 1 Timothy 2.8. We're to be lifting holy hands, it says, without anger or quarreling. We're, everything's supposed to be above the table, on the table, above board. Titus 1.8, qualification to be an elder is to be upright and holy. The same word, osios. It's reflecting who Jesus was while on earth. It's also reflecting what Jesus' character is in heaven. And it's very important to understand that the vision of Jesus on earth is the same person who is exalted in heaven. And so the attributes carry in terms of what we understand about Jesus as he walked here on earth, interacted with people and lived his life. That's the same one who is in heaven. Never forget my mother-in-law who's gone to be with the Lord. We had the last conversation we had was about what will it be like in heaven? 
and for some reason, I never thought about this way, but I, she had such a, a committed devotion to God. I just said, just look at how the disciples interacted with Jesus on earth. I'm sure there's some crossover when you're in heaven. Same Jesus. It's amazing. It's the same Jesus. He's holy, but him being holy doesn't mean he's distanced from you. It just means that he's perfect, perfect within his character. Revelation 16.5 does say the same word of Christ in heaven. It's an angel that declares, O holy one who is and who was. So it's who he was on earth and who he is today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, whether on earth or in heaven. Second, he's innocent. Look at verse 26 again, innocent. That word means harmless, akakia, without evil. He was harmless. He did not harm people. He was never harmful to hurt people. He was a friend and, and a friend to his friends and a friend to his enemies with compassion and grace. There's never any pollution in Christ. Nothing is sullying his integrity. It's free from evil, free from craft, free from cunning, free from duplicity. Number three, unstained, amiantos. This is the same word for what a priest would need to have in terms of having a sacrifice for him would make him unstained to go into the Holy of Holies. Jesus was undefiled in and of himself. He was the spotless lamb. He didn't need a spotless lamb. An unstained lamb would have to be offered for a priest, but not for Jesus. MacArthur said this. He said, just as rays of sun can shine into the foulest stagnant pond and lose not their radiance and purity. So Jesus lived his life in the sinful, defiled world without losing the least of his beauty and purity. Jesus is not defiled. Jesus, think about it this way, was the friend of sinners. He wasn't afraid to mix it up with people who the Pharisees wouldn't go near. Jesus did all kinds of things. He engaged Satan himself and in that encounter left it undefiled. Jesus fled from, I mean, Satan fled from him, but he was left undefiled, perfect, sinless, spotless. Verse 26 builds all of this together, separated from Sinners. This is a fourth attribute. He's separated from sinners. This doesn't mean Jesus joined a monastery when he was here on earth. He didn't live like a monk. He wasn't a, a secluded person, didn't a hermit. He was unlike the Levitical priest who separated through religion and false precept. Those who had kept themselves away from anyone who defiled them ritually. Jesus, he mixed it up with people. He touched lepers. Think about that. He let the woman with the issue of blood touch the hem of his garment. Ritually, he would have been unclean, but he wasn't. He touched dead people. It's forbidden in the old covenant, but Jesus was bringing the new. Jesus was revealing the heart of the matter. Not externalism, but A transformed heart and life is what matters. And Jesus didn't need transformation. He's perfect. But we strive to be like Christ. He was with his parents, his brothers, his sisters, his friends, his disciples. He traveled with them. He ate with them. He worshiped with them. But in Christ's 
nature. He was completely separate. This is an amazing way to live our lives. Christ mingled with sinners. I'm quoting someone. He mingled with sinners to reach them, but he was separate in his nature to save them. Think about that. Isn't that what we need to do in our evangelism? Mingle with sinners while we guard our hearts in Christ Jesus all the while. Your Christian life will wake up if you'll get out of your comfort zone and make friends with sinners, people who need Christ. Talk to them, join clubs with them. All the while, protect yourself from being influenced by them. You ever heard the uh, biblical phrase to be in the world, but not of the world? I'm testing all of you. That's really not a Bible verse. Do you know that? We're to be in the world, but not of the world. It's not a Bible verse, but it's a great little aphorism to learn. We're in here, but we're not of the world. What fellowship has light with darkness, right? We need to have some measure of separation. And yet at the same time, if we don't integrate with people who need Jesus, how will they know about Jesus? How will they see that it, it is powerful to know Jesus? Well, exalted in the heavens, look at verse 26. Separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. This is a fifth attribute. It's tying, again, everything together. It's uh, who he was on earth is who he is in heaven. It's the reward for righteousness. He is triumphant and exalted in his righteousness. He exuded perfect character. He died and the death that was the father's mission for him to do was buried, rose again, and then ascended. The language here in verse 26 literally says, having become higher than the heavens. But again, he's not separated from us, we who are believers, but in heaven, there is no sin. So there is a separation there, yet in his heart, he's connected to us as his sheep. It's a mystery, right? How is Jesus so intimately connected to us when we are so ridden with sin? But he is. And his holiness is what qualifies him as our priest to do that. Well, not only does he have perfect character, he also is the sufficient sacrifice. Look at verse 27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. Stop there. No need. Jesus is not under duress. Jesus isn't distressed over a sin issue that he doesn't have, right? Jesus never sinned. He doesn't have a sin issue. So he doesn't have to deal with anything. He's not distressed. This is a throwback to Leviticus 4, where we're talking about the Aaronic priesthood. They were priests who sinned, obviously, because they were sinners, who had to offer a sacrifice on the day of atonement. Leviticus 16 speaks of that before they could offer the broad sacrifice for the nation of Israel. But Leviticus 4, we're not going to go back there right now. Leviticus 4 verse 3 speaks of a required sacrifice that was done more on a potentially daily basis for a priest. I'm sure if their conscience was firing, they would offer a daily sacrifice. But there could be a daily sacrifice for a priest to be able to do his job. Do you see that? Christ has no need for this, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. 
whether they did it or not, there was a provision for it and they needed to be in daily circumspection for a sacrifice to be given before we, you know, may give too much bad mail to the uh, Levitical priests. Look in your own heart, right? Daily, we should be confessing our sins to the Lord based on the once for all sacrifice, asking forgiveness so that we can be in good fellowship with the Lord. It's a daily thing. And it was also in Leviticus 4.13, something that was a provision for people who sinned. Outside of the Day of Atonement, there were sacrifices that were regularly to be given. But Christ had no need for this. And in this verse, verse 27, the word sense is not there. Let me read it. It says uh, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, this is the priest, and then for those uh, for those of the people. And then it says, since, and that's connecting back to the first phrase, he has no need since he did this once for all. Actually, the word since isn't in there in the original language. I didn't find it. And so the way the verse could read, it doesn't read as smoothly, Christ has no need. And then you just go right, you lose the word since, and it just, he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He, he didn't have to sacrifice for himself. His offering is completely for us. It's completely for believers. It's a one-time offering. It is a sufficient sacrifice. Priest and people need Jesus. Jesus didn't need to save himself. It's once for all offered up himself. Think about that. Absolute sufficiency led to the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus covered our sins. First Peter three eighteen. for Christ also suffered once for sins. Titus two fourteen. Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us. Do you realize, have you thought about the fact that Jesus thought of you and went to the cross? Are you willing to be vulnerable enough before your God to say thank you in your heart and realize that Jesus, the second person of the Godhead said, I'm going to the cross to save sinners willingly, willingly. Spurgeon, he really got into, got into this whole idea about Jesus offering himself up and he began to speak about in a sermon from this text about how he didn't go under constraint. He offered himself up freely. He makes the point, and I, I want to just share it. He says, this makes the sacrifice of Christ so blessed and glorious. And he talk, he's talking about the, the priest who used to drag, he called them bullocks or bulls, and they drove the sheep to the altar. They bound the calves with cords, even with cords to the altar's horn. I mean, these were animals. So, I mean, bulls, wild animals, right? We had a couple of wild animals in our backyard um, this week. I thought that was kind of cool, a, a bear crossing the yard, until I thought, man, you know, I really don't know what to do if that goes badly. Um, I need to learn in short order. But it was a bear in the backyard one day and then the moose coming out the other way the other day. And then I thought I was cool. And then a buddy of mine, I saw a picture of his and he had a, a privacy fence where the black bear is crawling over the privacy fence. So I guess we're all just in the wild together. Think about dragging a wild animal up to the altar. 
to bloodlet, to kill it. I mean, that, that is the absolute opposite of Jesus, who's a lamb willingly going to the slaughter. Just, I'm going. I'm, I'm self-sacrificing. He has the authority to lay down his life and the authority to take it up again. And he exercised that authority on your behalf. So he's a perfect sacrifice. He laid down his life, Spurgeon said, voluntarily. He had the power to lay it down and take it up again. So far as Christ himself, so far as Christ was himself alone concerned, there was no necessity that he should die. He was infinitely glorious and blessed. He offered up himself, but not for himself. It was for God and for man. Perfect character, sufficient sacrifice in verse 28, a transcendent son. Look at verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Again, this is summary language. It's summarizing a lot of what we've been learning. I'm saying a lot of the same things that you've heard over and over again. Why? Because this needs to get into our hearts. This concept here ties the Bible together. Why we have the Old Testament, why we had the ceremonial system, why we had the Aaronic, Aaronic priesthood. They're, all of the high priests, by the way, are just basically in the Old Testament holding up a sign saying, I'm a picture of the way to Christ. Christ is this way. Look at me. It's going to point to Christ. Everything has been established up till this moment. And then in verse 28, it says that everything was fulfilled by God, the father appointing a son. Do you see that? We don't have a priest from down here on earth to save us. We have God, the son to save us, anything less than God, the son, the son of God that was described with those perfections, those attributes of holiness and glory and perfect character. Anything less than that does not save to the uttermost. You must have the son. That's who we have. The law appoints men in their weakness. They're weak. As high priest, it was insufficient. It was a picture. Then you have a, an oath which came later than the law. What does that mean? Does that mean the oath is less than the law? No, the law was insufficient and the oath is showing who is sufficient. Now, again, the oath came by David and it's Psalm 110 verse 4. That verse that we've ransacked and it keeps coming up. But that's the oath. That's the oath. It was uh, read earlier, verse 17, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. When was Melchizedek? Well, he was, he was 2,000 years BC interacting with Abraham or Abram in Genesis. And then you have David, or then you have the law that's written that's, uh, you know, 1400 BC. 
So you have the law and the priesthood and all of that. Then you have David airdropping in at 1000 BC. So we've, we've worked from 2000 to 1400 BC to 1000 BC. And David's saying, listen, it all ties together from the priesthood of Melchizedek. We're bunny hopping. We're going over all of this ceremonial law. And I'm showing you the true savior who's the fulfillment of the law of Moses that had been written 400 years before David wrote that. And so now this New Testament author, whoever it is, is saying, listen, Christ has come and he's fulfilled all of this. He is our perfect priest. The ritual system is dead. They were sacrificing animals. They were fulfilling old covenant law still, even though Christ had come. And what the author is doing is saying, don't go back to old ways. Don't get weary in the fight, weary in the battle and and digress back to ritualism. I know that none of us are tempted to forget about a vital relationship with Christ and just try to live it by religion, right? None of us are vulnerable to that, right? Right, are you with me? I mean, we're all past that. This doesn't apply at all to us. It's those Jewish New Testament Christians. We never default to legalism and just try to fix our own lives with uh, one, two, three and enough quiet times and enough giving and serving to make ourselves feel good enough about ourselves as we kind of compartmentalize our sins we're not dealing with, right? None of us are. Okay, yeah, yeah. We need to hear this. We need that savior. That's who we are focused on. We're keeping him the main thing in our lives through devotion and worship. The Old Testament was passing away. The Old Testament law was passing away. It all is found in Christ. Psalm 40, verse 6. This is where David's saying, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. Okay, that's David at 1,000 BC, 1,000 years before Christ. David's already cluing in going, you're not really about the ritualism of sacrifice, but you've given me an open ear. It's about a heart. That's open to God. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required. Psalm 51, 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice. This is the confession of David after he had sinned with Bathsheba. You haven't delighted in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. David knew he would say, create me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me, right? Well, if you turn over in your Bibles to Hebrews 10, we're not going to open this up right now, but, you know, verses 5 and 6 and 7 and 8. This is all of an exposition of Psalm 40. And it's opening up Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And it's making this point. But if you look at Hebrews ten nine, here's the summary phrase. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. We have the second. And the second is our Christ. Back to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, verse 28, the oath that appoints the son. The son is the final blow on the law when he came. He's the goal. He's the consummation. He's been made perfect forever. It wasn't that Jesus was imperfect. The idea here is that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the law. He came, he did it. He never sinned. Perfect character, perfect life giver, perfect lamb, perfect sacrifice, perfect high priest, death, burial, resurrection. He's exalted. He fulfilled it all. He fulfilled it all. It's what we have to remember. He remains high priest forever. 
All this leads to verse 1 of chapter 8, and I couldn't resist but tie this together. I really tried not to do this, but I knew I would leave myself dissatisfied if I didn't tie together the end of chapter 7 and charge into chapter 8. The beginning of the chapter begins with a summarizing point. Again, he's saying, now the point in what we are saying is this. The point is kephaleon. It's the word head. John Knox, that great preacher of old, he called it the very pith or the soft center in wood. It's the pith. It's the crown. It's the summarizing statement. Everything from chapters 1 to 7 is surfacing now. And what is the point? We have such a high priest. We have such... A high priest. It's the same phrase as verse 26. It's fitting that we should have such a high priest. The point is, this is our Christ. This is Jesus, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. You know, if you're in Sunday school class, where are the kids? Or, you know, some kids go out, some kids stay. If you're a kid, raise your hand. I see that hand. Okay. I got you. I got you. This is sort of a family church day. I got it. Kids, you are welcome to stay. I'm not trying to do something disruptive to our program, but I love kids. Um, and um, obviously, we've got six of them. Um, but kids, kids in Sunday school class, or even it'll work in Christian school, if a teacher asks you a Bible question, if you will just load in your mind, Jesus, I'm going to, if I don't know, I'm going to say Jesus. You will 90% of the time, well, I'll say this, 80% of the time, you'll probably get it's right. It is about Jesus. And then there's, there's some level of, of gray area where the teacher will doubt him or herself in terms of the answer they have because you've just said Jesus, right? <laughs> it's like, well, the answer was no in the ark, but is he a picture of Jesus? Oh, no, you know. <laughs> so just use that. Willingly, Jesus, he's the answer. On a more sophisticated level, though, um, Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. He is. I just want to unpack verse one a little bit. One who is seated at the right hand. The Aaronic priest, they never sat down. When they would go in and offer sacrifices, there was no seat in the Holy of Holies. There was no place for them to sit down. There was no seat for them. They were busy. They were never done. They were never going to be done. Every priest, Hebrews 10, 11, stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. The author is saying that's over. Christ's superiority is found in Jesus being seated at the right hand. Seated at the right hand is the place of honor. It's a place of majesty, place of power. There's a story, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.19, that speaks of Bathsheba, talking about different characters in the Bible, um, though her name sort of comes into the narrative with sin. Um, she became a revered woman of God. She actually could have been the one for whom Psalm 31 was speaking of. The right hand of a king was considered the highest place of honor in the kingdom. And it was seen this way in Solomon's day. You remember Solomon, her son, after David died, Solomon was king. And 1 Corinthians 2.19 says, So Bathsheba went to King Solomon, going to her son who is king, to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. 
And the king arose to meet her and bowed down to her. So the king is bowing to his mother. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother. And she sat on his right. He was honoring his mother. Appropriate on Mother's Day to bring this up. Now Bathsheba was completely misguided. And I read the context for this. Uh, This son... Adonijah was jealous of Solomon's throne and he was the fourth uh, son from David from another mother and um, very much like Absalom was trying to create insurrection. Absalom, I think, had been dealt with at this point, obviously, but but Solomon was uh, wise to the scheme and actually had Adonijah killed, but oh well, but he did honor his mother. <laughs> Hey, if I look it up, sometimes I have to share, you know. Throne. Throne is a picture of majesty. It's a raised chair with a footstool signifying majesty and also dominion, royalty, and the place of affection and kingly power. Christ is co-equal to the Father, but there's no competition. He's co-equal to the Holy Spirit, but there's no competition. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, if you blend together the vision of Ezekiel with the wheels going around with the laser light show around the throne, giving glory to God and the angels moving in and out with different faces of an angel, of a human, of, of a beast, you have an incredible picture of lion power and authority that's giving back glory to God on the throne. Revelation 4 and 5, Isaiah chapter 6, all of this ties together this glorious picture in it. God the Father's right hand, you have the co-equal who is the Son seated in holy authority, seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. The word the majesty, this taste megalasune is a name for God, the, there's a definite article. You could say Christ is the majesty in heaven, preeminence and greatness and ceremony is all around Christ. Is the fulfillment of it all. What does all this mean? Now I'm going to just um, hit the fast button on verses 2 through 5 just to make the point. This is still a heaven's vision in verse 2. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Again, making that heaven supersedes what was done here on earth point. Verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. Thus, it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now, if, if, if he, Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So what Jesus has done and is doing up in heaven is utterly separate from the failed system of what's down here on earth. That's the point. Now verse five, those down on earth, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Stop there. They serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. It's the same concept of Colossians 2.16 where false teachers were trying to leverage Old Testament law and tradition and confuse the church. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, guard to festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Again, everything is Christ. It's important for us to fill in what that means with hard study through Hebrews. I understand Tough sledding, right? Through Bible, tying it together, but it's all Christ. 
And by doing this hard subpoint work, it builds to get Christ right and get the main point right, which is Christ. And this vision of Christ fulfills it all. It fulfills it all in our lives as well. All right, so for Mother's Day, I have to end with something. Mother's Day, and I'm going to, I couldn't make this my own. This is something John Piper put together as only John Piper could. He, when he was preaching, addressed the children directly. He said, children, listen up. So that's what I'm doing here, but I'm going to read what he said. He said, kids, suppose you are, um, you and your mom get separated in the grocery store. Now, this has happened to me. I still remember. And you start to get scared and panic and don't know which way to go. So you run to the end of the aisle and just before you start to cry, you see a shadow on the floor at the end of the aisle that looks just like your mom. It makes you really happy and you feel hope. But which is better? The happiness of seeing the shadow or having your mom step around the corner and it's really her. That's the way it is when Jesus comes to be our high priest. That's the idea of moving from religion to relationship. From trying to do something to save you or keep you to I'm resting in Jesus Christ who's got me and I have him. And even if I let go, he's not going to let me go. That's what we have. It's not a priest who's weak, sinful, dying in the Old Testament days. It's not a, it's not a tabernacle with limitations, wearing out, soaked, burned, torn up. It's the Son of God who's strong and sinless with an indestructible life. This is the tent the Lord set up. Is this your Jesus? Is this your Savior? Will you commit to keep Jesus primary and preeminent in your heart, at least for the next few days, and then we'll come back to the word again. We want to be faithful. And the word of Christ dwells in us richly and keeps us there, keeps us lifted up high in our hearts as we serve and live for him. And as we try to win people to Christ being in this world while we guard our hearts so we don't get dragged to become of the world.